I'm Alexander Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. We have no monologue today. I'm giving my voice a little bit of a break, but we do have two excellent interviews for you. First, John James, the former Dynasty actor who portrays Joe Biden in the film My Son Hunter. Those of you who've been listening to any recent broadcast know I love the choices he made with the role, and he discusses his decision to not portray the current president as a total moron. It might shock you, but I think it's really well done and more so than you'd anticipate absolutely hilarious as well and we get into that his choices plus also how he made international news with a dramatic onset injury during filming and much more in the interview we also speak to david limbaugh who's an attorney author and brother of rush limbaugh and he really is a class act and he's got a new book out on jesus christ and his life and teachings and uh, you'll certainly want to hear about it and probably want to pick it up and read it as well Let's get into the first interview. This is John James. John James is on the line with me. He plays Joe Biden in the My Son Hunter movie, which is out now. And I've been trying to get John on for a while. I'm glad we finally were able to link up. You guys probably best know him from Dynasty, where he was a star uh, back in the day. And now is in a new phase of his career where he's doing a really pioneering work, trying to uh, bring the arts to people who I think have been disenfranchised. And that's this audience. John, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being on with me. Thanks for having me on, Alex. Yeah, I've been. I just got in late last night from San Francisco. I'm here in Nashville about one a.m. Been kind of going, but uh, yes, I'm glad, very much glad to be on. And uh, you're right, art, and that's what I, I. You know, art is is meant to create emotion, and um, if it's good art, it creates a lot of emotion. So I think of uh, my son Hunter in that way. Yes. That's that's how we move things is through art. Yeah, and Robert Davi, the director, has been talking a lot about this, about how the emotions is key. And in in the right, you know, there is this, and I don't want to pick on um, you know Ben Shapiro per se because Ben's always been. Uh, Pretty, pretty kind to me, though, kind of hostile to Breitbart in general over the years. But he's got this saying that facts don't care about your feelings. I think it's kind of backwards. I, I think the feelings don't care about your facts sometimes. And I think that the right, we've neglected emotion. We've neglected feelings. And I'm probably a part of the problem here, John, because I try to bring just the facts to the show as best I can and, you know, sure. whatever entertainment value I need to. But uh, we do have it backwards. We need to focus much more on the entertainment. We need to focus much more on the emotions. And I think that the Hunter Biden movie, My Son Hunter, rooted in facts. But what really makes it is the emotions. It makes you feel things. And that's something that yeah. I think you and Robert and Lawrence and Gina, you guys have really done a great job of that. Well, thank you very much, Alex. Yeah, I know that when I watch a movie, or I like to walk walk out of the theater or, or switch off the television and and think about it. And um, it, it that's that's important, and that's the emotional aspect yeah. of making good movies. I think, and, and I think a lot of that's a lot of that is going today in, in the creative process because uh, I have a saying: show business to. To hit is like hitting the perfect golf ball. You have to have just enough show on the left or just enough show on the right. 
And if he hit the ball in the middle, he got a home run. And um, that's, I think we got too much business now, too much focus groups. Um, and the, yeah, this is really bold on many levels. My son, Hunter. Um, so tell me about the casting process and tell me about how you found out about the film and how you got involved with it and your excitement level. Were you skeptical at the time? And uh, I just uh, love hearing about the process. By the way, my, my mother was a casting director back in the day. So it's, um, oh, it, wow. it's something that I, I've, always, I've always paid attention to. I just think it's an amazing thing when the right script meets the right actor. It's such an, a, an amazing thing. And I think it's, this did happen here. But I want to hear from you. Yeah, I am. Um, Fellow McLean, uh, clear, he called me um, and said, I have something for you, and, and I'd like you to play Joe Biden. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness. Um, I said, really? <laughs> I said, yeah. uh, this was a year ago, actually, a little over a year. I think it was August sometime. And um, I said, okay, send me the script. Let me take a look at it. I'll get back to you sometime next week. So I think uh, I sat down Sunday morning, a cup of coffee, and I started reading. And I almost called him <laughs> Sunday afternoon. I was so excited about the script. I agreed to do it. And then I had to think about, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to betray Joe Biden? What... What am I going to do? And I said, okay, let's just get back to basics. And um, I asked them, I said, who's directing? And they said, Robert Dobby. I said, Robert Dobby, oh, well, he's a great actor. And I know this, that the best directors I've ever worked with were actors. They know how actors think. They can get in their heads and they have a certain cinematic eye because they know what looked good and what they like. And I thought, well, that's a good thing. Robert's directing. And then I got into the character, and I thought I read these very, some of them very funny, some of them, you know, I mean, very difficult. The situations they put Joe and Hunter in, in that SUV, and how we're, you know, how he's dressed, and uh, the scene itself is just marvelous, just great writing. So I thought, okay, uh, no, I'm not going to parody the guy. No, I'm going to play for. I'm going to go for the straight emotions of a father and a son that could be happening anywhere in the world, a rich father and a son on, on drugs and the conflict there that goes on. And that's how I approached Joe. I didn't want to do a parody. Of course, I did have to pick up his mannerisms and his, the way he speaks, you know. And I remember one day on the set, <laughs> when I... I think very fast, like kind of like Joe, actually. And uh, I, I, I tend to get the stutter like this. And uh, I, was, I was on the set, and I was having a particularly bad day that day, and I just wasn't hitting it. And I knew it, too, and Robert was screaming out, okay, let's, let's, let's try it again. I, no, 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 Robert, I got it. Okay, back to one. So this happened about five times, and I kept saying, no, I got it, Robert. I know, what you, I know, I know, I got it. And Robert says, well, if you got it, we wouldn't be doing it again. Now, back to one. <laughs> yeah, so we eventually got it. But in the back of the scene in the SUV, there was a two-way radio. And I'm going along doing this long scene with Robert. And uh, I'm with Lawrence, I'm sorry. Lawrence Fox, who plays Hunter. And all of a sudden, over the two-way radio, right in the middle, right in the middle of my line, John, I want you to take it back. 
two and a half lines. Take a little edge off that and sit. <laughs> I go, I said to myself, why can't you just make it two lines? Two and a half <laughs> lines? Come on. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, it was, it was, it, it was an amazing experience. I think I have lifelong friends now from this because there was an element. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, we used to say question authority. That was back in the 70s. Right? That was kind of the hippie move of the young question authority. And here today, we don't have that. I mean, it's my way or the highway. And there was sort of, we felt like kind of a band of gypsies. And it was an odd feeling, just us doing this film, that we don't know where this is going to take us. Will I ever work again, Alex? I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know. If, if, if I'm toxic now, even if they don't want to cancel me, whether or not I'm toxic because of this. But I think truth, truth ends up winning in the end. I do believe that. And I think I hope people can look at it as a creative piece whether or not they agree with it, but look at it as a creative piece, uh, the picture, and um, pass judgment on that. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's happening for the most part, though there are some exceptions, but they just look so bad. I, I think that most people are giving the film a fair shot, and those who aren't just, just look, look so terrible. John James is on with me. He plays Joe Biden in My Son Hunter, and... Uh, I uh, I really love your portrayal, and I know that the audience knows I do have a dog in the fight in this case. I want the movie to be a big hit, but uh, but I mean this genuinely, that I like that you didn't play him purely as a bumbling idiot. There are some great moments that I won't reveal for the audience where you do kind of go into bumbling idiot mode momentarily, but you do play him as more of a, a mob boss or a uh, or someone who is a, a more of a schemer, and I think this is more accurate, and I think it's very lazy for all of us on the right to just act like he's just some big dope. If he's a big dope, how has he maintained power for 45, 50 years in this country? Thank you. Been, Thank been, you. Been, That's exactly what I said to myself. Okay. Go he's ahead. He's dope. He's been, he was the youngest senator at the time at 31, all right, when he went into politics. He was touted as the next John Kennedy back in his early days in the Senate. He was a good-looking guy, charismatic, got up there with the people. He's no dummy. He is no dummy. He, he's dumb like a fox now. And part of me wonders whether or not, whether or not he's an actor as well. And um, he's, he's, he's a smart man. You don't get to be president of the United States if you don't have something in between your ears. Uh, that's correct. And I think that is um, I think he is acting to some degree. I think he is playing a character sure. to some degree. And there are some things that and I think this makes for a better movie. And I think the fact that we sort of figured it out, you figured it out clearly. Robert figured it out. I think I've figured it out. And I think I, I bring that to the show every day. And I think this is something that I, I hope that this changes people's perception of Joe in that way. And not that he doesn't have that that streak in him where he does go into these bouts of insanity. And I do think he is demented. I do think he's deteriorating mentally, but he had a fastball. And I think that fastball does come through at some points. And I think a lot of his persona is more calculated and hunters as well. And, and I want you to evaluate something I've been saying on the show for a couple of weeks now, uh, after watching the film, it dawned on me 
that when Joe said Hunter is the smartest guy he knows, I think Joe was telling the truth. I think Joe genuinely believed that. Um, from your immersing yourself as Joe, uh, do you feel like that's the case? Without giving, I hope I don't. Well, here's what I, I have my theory about this. Yes. However, yes, I do believe that Joe thinks that because there's another aspect to this as well. And that's that's the drama in it. And that's what will make you think because, you know, I hate reading comments, but I was reading comments and stuff like that. And there are a number of them that are saying, <clears throat> wondering whether or not Hunter... Hunter got back at his father for a reason. And this laptop thing, you know, the line you, you know, that Emma says, you, you just want to bring your family down. Exposing his father with the laptop on purpose for, I don't know, revenge maybe, or um, the anger, you know, petulant child. I don't know. But that's certainly certainly a possibility um and that's up to the viewer that's a takeaway you can get out of this movie um there's always what we call as actors subtext for each character what is hunter's subtext during the scene my scene with him what are we thinking about why are we there having that scene why was that scene written he's you know, everything you know <clears throat> it's that's what's so interesting about this because the story works on so many different levels. And if you watch it, you start to think. And the way they placed us in these locations in the, outside the Chateau Marmont, the way Lawrence is dressed, I'm in a suit, and he comes out in a terry cloth robe with a scarf around his head. Uh, and sitting at the contrast is just visual contrast, is marvelous. And with Robert's lighting and the cinematography, it makes for a powerful moment. I'm sorry. It does. Regardless of the material, it doesn't matter. It's it's a very cinematic and beautiful thing. John James is on with me. He is the star of My Son Hunter. He plays Joe Biden. I think he's made some pretty brilliant choices in, in order to uh, carry off the portrayal. Uh, John, I want to ask you about this story where you uh, allegedly took method acting to a new level and uh, you were rushed to a hospital in Serbia after an injury on the set. I want to hear about this, but I also want to hear about the method acting approach. Did you did you method act this or were you acting as Joe Biden uh, while you were on set? While I was on set? No. I mean, I here's when I switch on, when I put on uh, my wardrobe, and I also had to, um, I had to have my hair done immediately, uh, bleached, and my eyebrows. And uh, one, uh, I kept because I was there, and I, we were rehearsing, and I said, I said, one of the producers, I said, please, I got to get my hair done ASAP. And as soon as I had my hair bleached out white and my eyebrows done, I walked into the bathroom and I went, oh my god, yeah. So I guess to that extent, yes, I am. But when I get into my wardrobe, I I'm I switch to a different kind of. I mean, I don't walk around like Joe Biden, but yeah, I get into the mood, so to speak. <clears throat> but tell me about the injury. So so did oh, so you rush to Serbian hospital? Yes. Well, we all went out to dinner. It was early, early dinner. Robert uh, on the weekend. Our first day off was the next day. 
um, Gina Corona, who plays the Secret Service agent, and Lawrence Fox and myself, and we went out and had a wonderful meal. And I happened to go out the wrong side of the restaurant. They had two glass doors, and I went out the entrance side, and I placed my hand on the handle of the door, and I pulled it back, looked back, and it, the door hit my glasses. And, oh, damn, you dummy. So I go outside on the street, and I thought, oh, why is it wet? And I looked down on the street or the sidewalk, and there's a pool of blood. I thought, oh, my God, you idiot. And then I immediately panicked. My God, I'm filming. What the hell have I done? Lawrence comes out, and Lawrence says, oh, oh my uh, oh my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which made me feel great. Thanks, Lawrence. Yeah, really. But Gina, I mean, talk about, talk about having somebody. <laughs> I couldn't ask for somebody better than Gina. She walks over to me, and I don't know how bad it is. Obviously, I can't say it. And she sits me down on the on this on the corner there by the restaurant, and she says, "Oh, John, don't worry about it. I went back into the ring with bigger cuts than that." Now, people who don't know, she was the first uh, women's mixed martial arts champion in the world, and uh, she was very, very comforting. And of course, now what do we do? And I didn't want to go to the hospital, so we. Rushed back to the hotel where Nicholas, the hotel manager's best friend and hotel doctor, and I said, look, they said, he's going to need stitches. He's going to need stitches. I said, look, I don't want to go to the hospital, please. I just can't. They stitch me somewhere up. And it was well, 8 o'clock at night now, 8.30 in, in Belgrade. And they said, no, 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 because you knocked your head and blah, blah, blah. You're going to have to go to the hospital. So my entourage, including Nicholas, the hotel manager, his friend, the doctor, who said he knew who was head of the emergency room that night, take off, and a couple of producers, so a nice little entourage, and we head to the Belgrade Main Hospital uh, downtown. Now we show up, and it's a Soviet-style hospital uh, with all the uh, warmth and charm of that period, and um, kind of a pale pea-green walls, and they walk me in. They escort me in of about five people. And uh, I signed in, handed over my passport. And with that, they escorted me down this hallway with about 40 people standing in line in various needs of emergency care. <laughs> and I imagine that the way that I was presented to them, their mouths dropped because they, <laughs> who the hell is this? My God. There's nobody in Belgrade <laughs> with white hair like that. Is that Joe Biden, right? And I get oh my gosh, whisked. And there's I say, that could have been a scene in the movie. I mean that that could have been. So I'm lying down on the bed, and the doctor walks over to me. He says, "Yes, yes, you're going to need stitches." I said, "Oh damn!" You know, thinking about production and all that, and they put a little hydrogen peroxide. He says, "Okay, put this in between your teeth." All right, here we go, and start stitching me with no Novocaine, nothing. <laughs> it starts stitching my to the left side of my right eyebrow. Yeah, they're tough over there in Eastern Europe. Let me tell you right now, Alex, they are tough. So he stitched me up, and out I went. Out goes Joe Biden out into the night. <laughs> but the funny thing is, is that I, that story went went viral newswise. I mean, it was all over in India. Um, wow, crazy. that's amazing. Yeah, if you look back, it's it's amazing the coverage that story got.
it was a pleasure to speak to David Limbaugh, just an all-around nice guy and not someone I've had on the broadcast in the past, which is with which is a shame because uh, he's very sharp and very decent, comes out a very decent guy and uh, definitely someone who was one of the behind the scenes, I think, positive influences on Rush Limbaugh's life. So a lot to learn from David, but more importantly, a lot to learn from Jesus Christ, who's been the subject of many of his books, including uh, his latest, which is out now and selling quite well. And we get a lot of his time and you're definitely going to want to hear about uh, what he learned also uh, studying and writing about Jesus uh, yet again, as he's been known to do. Let's hear from David Limbaugh. We have a new guest on the line. David Limbaugh is on. He is the author and brother of Rush Limbaugh, and he has got a new book out called The Resurrected Jesus, and he's written it with Christian Limbaugh Bloom, and the church in the New Testament is the subtitle. David, it's nice to have you on the broadcast, and uh, I, I wanted to mention something. that You've always been so classy about being kind of known as Russia's brother. I know that you're an attorney and you've had a lot of success and you're a very popular right of center Twitter personality, but you've been very classy about having a legendary brother. And I think that's something that's, uh, that's an interesting thing to live that way. Uh, do you care to speak to that for a second before we get into the book? No problem at all. Thanks for having me on, Alex. Um, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I felt like um, I was modestly successful in my own right before Rush uh, found his calling, and uh, so I, I was. I felt good about. It. I'm not not something spectacular, but I had a, a you know moderately uh, good profession, professional life. And then he brought me along by allowing me to do his contract work, and then encouraging me to write and get into the commentary area. So we have never been competitive. It's like <clears throat> he's he's been such an inspiration to me. Uh, that I just think it would be uh, outrageous for me to not to be deferential about that and not to be appreciative and not to really know my place concerning him. That is to say, nobody's better than anybody else, but he, I realize his greatness in, in his field. And, you know, people have said to me, why don't you go on the radio? Well, that would be absurd because the, the, I would instantly get compared with him unfavorably and all that. So it's just kind of been a complimentary path. And I've just been so appreciative of what he's allowed me, what he, what he's brought me in to do. And I, he's opened doors for me that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to go through, including uh, being a published author. If I, you know, if I had not been his brother, I wouldn't have had any way to have access to any of this. There's so many good authors out there who don't have connections and who will never be published because they don't have a platform. And they may be self-published, but it won't go anywhere because they just don't have the breaks that I've had. Yeah, and this is a big reality, and I, I put my first book out last year, and I think it's a good book. I mean, it might even be a great book, but the reality is is that I got the book deal because I've got an audience. It's not because I'm necessarily a great writer. I hope I'm a great writer, too, but that's not the point. You need the audience first, and that's just the way the world works, unless you're just truly such superb talent that you can't be denied. But, you know, I was just looking at, I think, um, Jonathan Franzen, who's maybe the best novelist of, of, uh -huh. of our time, is he had a book out last year. I don't even think it made the bestseller list. So you could be the best writer in the world. It's just, it is about getting getting the word out. I mean, that's the main goal. You know, I've expanded my entertainment practice, law practice, and I am approached all the time by people who want to get a book published 
and I represent a lot of high-profile people who have had successful books, and so I have good connections. Again, it's all not nothing to do with me, but just the way life is professional life has unfolded for me, and you make these contacts. So I have good connections and, and, and trust with people, and I originally would approach publishers front with unknown authors thinking I'm going to help people and help my friends uh, who have had, and invariably it's shut down it's, it's so I've gotten to the point not to be insensitive callous selfish whatever but it's just a waste of time 99% of the time to approach a publisher no more than 99% approach a publisher with an unknown author I just I just found it almost pointless I don't know if you know what I'm talking about but that's so it's so it's really tough. It's really tough out there. And you had your own platform, as you say. But even so, it's still hard. You, you get, it's hard to get a lot of promotion on books if you don't get on the big shows or get some serious word of mouth going or social media. But it's a, it's a tough, tough. I think book promotion is way, way more grueling than research and writing, which I enjoy. Well, I want to talk about the research and writing, but the book is already a success in the top 100 on Amazon right now, The Resurrected Jesus, The Church in the New Testament. And first, talk to me about how you came to this project. And I have to admit, I'm frankly a little bit jealous. I, I, I could go for six months to a year of just immersing myself in Jesus's life and teachings than uh, yeah. the day to day I got to deal with. So uh, hats off to you for pulling that off. But but tell me the origin of the project. I know you've written a few things in the sort of religious theme. It's not your first, but uh, talk talk. Talk to us about that. Yeah, this is my 11th book, and, and the, the six have been political, and this is the fifth Christian book. This one is with my daughter, Christian, who has started writing for Fox News, opinion pieces, always on Christian-themed subjects. And also, she has a blog, Hapless, uh, a Christian blog. And uh, I just wanted to join her or have her join me in this project to help jumpstart her writing career, book writing career career if she wants to pursue it sorry my voice is a little strained um but just for the very reasons we were talking about how hard it is to get in on your own but uh this book is kind of a follow-up to the last when jesus is risen in which i discussed the book of acts and paul's first six epistles <clears throat> this one is paul's remaining seven epistles prison epistles that he wrote uh, while imprisoned in Rome, he wrote to the churches, uh, and the pastoral epistles, which he wrote to his colleagues, Timothy and Titus. And uh, so I'm not sure exactly the question, but I, I, what the book is about is uh, going through the Scripture, the, very, the New Testament books, these letters that Paul wrote, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and either stating the verse directly or paraphrasing it, then inserting our commentary and insights, and then inserting commentary from great scholars that you know I've been introduced to over the years, and that I want to share, whose insights I want to share with people, uh, and Kristen does too. And then we also this time added prayer. Kristen's a prayer warrior, and so I wanted to get her to introduce prayer. So you know, every few pages that we need to pray for this and. She just she has such a facility for it, so it was a, a neat interactive interactive process where I would first write the, the text and then she would edit and contribute her own stuff and we'd go back and forth 
if she would originally write the prayers and, and, and I do the same in reverse. So it's, it's really been a gratifying project. So what, let me ask you what surprised you the most as far as what you learned about doing this series on Jesus. And did it change your faith at all, your perspective on Christ? I imagine it did to some degree. Could you speak to that? Yeah, well, I, I uh, wasn't originally a Christian, probably until my mid-30s. And I, I chronicled my uh, journey, my spiritual journey from skeptic to believer in my first book, Jesus on Trial, and also uh, made it a, a an apologetics book, Defense of the Faith, that gave the reasons that I came to believe. And so I've been a firm believer since then, but, but the more you de- dig into it, uh, in my view, at least in my experience, the stronger your faith becomes. And, and now some people go the other way for some reason. I don't know, rebellious nature, or, or they just have doubts. I don't know. <clears throat> but one of the reasons I write these is to help people overcome doubts, uh, because I think I can approach people in a way uh, that maybe pastors or theologians can't, because they probably did, never experienced the rebellion and doubt that I went through. So I think I might be able to relate to them on a different level. We all have our own uh, calling in this area if we're, if we're uh, Christians, and we evangelize. We have a duty to evangelize. This is the way I've primarily chosen to do it. But I, I'm not not surprised by the things I've read because I've read them so much. But they, I will tell you that each time you read the Bible or any part of the Bible, it can impact you in a different way, and you see things you didn't see before. Unless you, you somebody with the mind of someone like Ben Shapiro, who who's so smart, he probably has a hundred thousand percent comprehension every time he reads something. But I'm on the other hand, I see things differently every time I, I read the Bible, and it's fascinating. And you apply it to your life, and we're told, we're told in Scripture to to practice the spiritual disciplines, to pray and be in the Word of God, because it draws you closer to God. We have a relational God, a personal God, a God who became man, became a human, just like us, so that he could die for our sins, and we could enjoy eternal life with him and, and redeem us. So so it's a, it's all about, a. I think the Bible's about God's love story. Created us, we fell, then he sent his son to save us. And, and it's, a, it's an, all an integrated body of work, 66 books written over 1,500 years with 40 authors, and it blows my mind the more I read and the more interconnections I see thematically and and in the storyline, and people don't realize that. I find it impossible to have occurred without God's superintending influence. I want to ask, do you you use any secular history in this book, or uh, was it all all directly from the Bible? Directly from the Bible. And that's you know, I think sometimes the promotional materials are a little misleading on that. Uh, this is the history of the early church. Well, the, you know, it really isn't. I mean, the book of Acts is the history of the early church, which I chronicled in the last book. This one has history because the Bible is, is history. It's, I mean, Paul is writing to the churches who have uh, strayed from the faith in some cases. And this is happening in real time, and he's a real person. He's got real issues, and he's He's a Christian who was, was an Orthodox Jew, and he's converted, and he's, he's grieved by the fact that these churches he, he's planted have uh, strayed from the faith. They're false teachers inside, corrupting the doctrine. So he writes to reprimand these churches in some cases and then correct them. And, 
and when and correct them doctrinally. And so these letters end up being doctrinal statements to some degree, and also in instructions for Christian living. So Paul probably didn't know that what he was writing was going to end up being in Scripture. Uh, but interestingly, some of his co-writers did. I think it was Peter who referred to Paul's writings, and he wrote his pretty early on after Jesus died, before the Gospels were written, most scholars believe. And he and people don't realize that because they appear after in, in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the canonical order, the Gospels appeared first before, the, I mean, before the uh, letters and the other New Testament epistles. But Paul is, is, he is, in fact, writing through the Holy Spirit. It's God's Word, and it's just unbelievable to, to see, when you, when you really fully take that in, the profundity of that, you, you read the Bible with a, with a different appreciation. I mean, it's, it's divine. Divinely inspired, God breathed. If you believe that, and I have to believe that, I don't have any doubt about it. Yeah, and I, I asked not because of the promotional materials, but more because I just find it fascinating when there are uh, the, the secular proof of of Christ. Oh, I think it's just oh. interesting. Yeah. Oh no, no, I did that in Jesus on trial, and I covered right. that thoroughly. Yes, and oh, I I wish because I want lay people to be exposed to that, or our new Christian people who who aren't really far along on their walk. But but there are also books. I, I, you know, wide, I've read a wide variety of books in theology and Bible study and all that. And there are books on New Testament history written in, where they where they use secular sources and the Bible. You know, Ben Witherington and and F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, total scholars, theologians, um, professors, seminary professors. And those kind of books are just mind-blowing. But that wasn't the focus of this book. The focus of this book was directly scripture and to to paraphrase and to to make to make it more accessible to people. I mean, I don't think some people would would say you shouldn't you should just let the Bible speak for itself. Well, we do, but we also I think as evangelists, we have a a duty, a calling to help people understand it uh, to because it's confusing to some people. And God didn't put us here to be bumps on a log, and there's nothing wrong. But you sure. do have a duty, a higher duty, as a, as a teacher of this stuff, to say the word, and you'll be held accountable if you distort it. So I, I take that very seriously, too. Yeah, as you should, and I think it's really an interesting conversation um, to, to have. But I, I want to ask more about uh, this book in particular, and I, I give us a sense of... Uh, Give us a sense of these these prayers that you've peppered in throughout the book. I, I'm guessing this comes from Kristen. Uh, yeah. who, uh, the, the, what what was the? This is an interesting way. To, I think it's a very interesting way to break up uh, the book and to give you a sense, a moment to reflect. But how do you select these prayers? Where are they from specifically? And uh, what do you recommend to people in terms of if they pick up the book in terms of using it to? as best they can their sort of optimized approach to going through it. it it's it, it's like a devotional too because because we add these prayers for the purpose of helping readers interact with the text with this with and with scripture no the prayers were primarily originally written by Kristen herself so I'd be writing something and I'd, I'd come I'd make a point a point from the Bible and I'd say we need to 
you, we need to insert a prayer here on that very thing uh, and, and, on, and, and ask God to come into our hearts and help us understand what we've just read. And she has a facility for it. And she's, it, it, she's very spirit-filled, and I, I'm amazed by what she comes up with when I ask her to put a prayer in. But it's, no, these are all, these are, none of these are borrowed from anyone else. She just did them as we went. Yeah, interesting. And uh, the I I I, I want to get a sense for if this is a book that you think would be people who are more secular or who are not Christian in the audience. Uh, do you think that this is a book for them as well, or is this mostly targeted just to a, a Christian audience? Absolutely, I do because I think it, it, if it helps Christians be less intimidated about the Bible, it might do the same thing for non-believers. And I actually do believe there are a lot of seekers out there. I'm sure I know a lot of people who, who are kind of nominal Christians or who, who uh, really would like to be believers but can't quite get over the hump. And if they trust us and if they feel comfortable with the text, they might be encouraged to read it, might be intrigued, and then they might go to the Bible itself and eventually become believers. So I absolutely, it's absolutely targeted to people in that category as well. I, I want to talk to you about a tweet you sent last month where you're talking about reaching across the aisle as if this is a virtue. Uh, and this is something that was talked about a lot uh, and it is going out of vogue right now. I think that I think that we saw this from the Joe Biden perspective a couple of weeks ago, or I guess, yeah, we can have or so ago when he started acting like anyone disagrees with him as some sort of an evil demon who should be banished from society. Um, I, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this because it is becoming more of a, it, it is going out of fashion and perhaps for good reason. So would you speak to this please? Yeah. I mean, I'm very passionate about this. I think a lot of us are just sheep, even conservatives, we mouth these platitudes. We we accept the the premises, the unproven proven premises of climate change, for example, because we're scared to death to challenge it. Our Darwinism, or macroevolution, we don't have the guts to even think for ourselves. But when and, and one of these cliches that we all mouth is, oh, we need a unifier. We need to, to get along. Well, now from a Christian perspective, of course, we have to display love. Uh, to everyone, and we have to be winsome and, and, and respectful. And of course, I sometimes fall down in that, but as we all do. But I don't, I don't buy this, that we need to unite with the left. The left, you can't unite with the left. Jesus, contrary to popular belief, didn't come to unite people. He came to divide. I'll divide brother and sister, mother and father. Why? Because he is truth. Jesus Christ embodies truth. And there are evil forces in this world who are always going to be at war with the truth. And so you cannot compromise your principles. You can be respectful and all that. But you have to realize that the secular left now is militant. They have no intention of working with us. Every time we compromise with them, we move closer to the left. Ever since for Ronald Reagan, we, we, have, we conservatives have not become more conservative. But the left has become increasingly more extreme. We believe in the same things we always believe in. Maybe shift a few things like on, uh, in, on trade and, and uh, that, those kind of issues and whether America first and foreign policy. Those things, we've, we've, gone, we've modified our beliefs a little bit. 
as things have unfolded and history has taught us some lessons. But basically, on economic and foreign policy, uh, law and order, cultural issues, we have not changed much at all, and yet we are accused of being extreme. Why? Because as they, as they change the cultural narrative, they, they demand that we fall in line. And if we don't fall in line, we're extreme, we're bigots, and we're not. And it's outrageous the damage they've caused to race relations, to gender, to the, 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 the things they've done to confuse the very definition of gender in contradiction of God's created order is abominable. And yet we can't even say that for fear we'll be canceled. You never see conservatives. You never see conservatives cancel or suppress the speech of the left. Rarely, if ever. You always see the left doing it in collusion with the digital oligarchs, uh, with the mainstream media. And they don't even have, they don't even apologize for it. And they will lie right to your face. And people say, well, either both sides do it. No, don't give me that moral equivalence. Recognize what is happening here. And we're seeing the deliberate destruction of the greatest nation ever in the history of the world. And we're facing several existential threats, primarily because of the left and their insane, destructive policies. Yeah, it's interesting because Breitbart is always framed as far right. And I try to think about what are my positions that you know, make me make me a far, far right person as opposed to just a normal right wing person. I mean, I've always lived on the coast and I've gone to the same schools as all the left wingers. And I probably am more moderate on war and global capitalism than I was when I was in college Republicans 15 years ago. So it's just like, like what makes us far right? I and mean, we should very normative viewpoints that we like they like having a border like we just get so people who define us that way david they don't want to agree with us on anything so they kind of started it they say i would love to talk and, across and, the aisle yeah go ahead and your founder was, was very early on precocious about this breitbart was yeah. adamant that we have to fight this war because he recognized what the menace of the left they just just think about what they've done and and, and how they've demonized people they their policies are destroying this, the very people they claim to protect. Look at the absurdity of their environmental policies. I was where you poor Californians are now having to charge your electric vehicles with gas-powered generators right. because the electrical grid is challenged. I find that just beyond belief, and we have to sit here and act like it's normal. I, I, most people I know realize this is utterly insane, what, what we're seeing before our eyes, and also that it's pure evil. We're changing words. Inclusive, when they talk about inclusivity, they mean exclusive. They want to stamp us out. Ben Shapiro, I mentioned him again, he was dis... When he went to some podcast uh, conference, these these liberals said, sent out a letter they can't apologize for the harm they did by allowing him to... Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine these people? And by the way, don't call them snowflakes because they aren't really harmed. They, they, they're they're bullies. They're the opposite of snowflakes. This is deliberate. Nobody's harmed. That's just absurd. What's harmful is what they're doing to free speech in this country, and and, and the cancellation, the cancel culture. I, but but the good thing is, they've gone too far, and I think they're gonna they're gonna get their uh, fanny spanked in November.
I hope you're right about that. The Resurrected Jesus is the book, The Church in the New Testament by David Limbaugh, which he wrote with his daughter, Kristen Limbaugh Bloom. It's out now, and um, it's clearly got a lot of momentum, and I hope everyone goes and picks it up. David, last question for today, and uh, by all means, please come back uh, if you would like to. It's been been a pleasure to talk to you. But I want to, so give us a lesson from Jesus that we could apply to this time right now where it just seems like the divisions are just getting more solidified, and so many of us are just, even though we would like to, we are not making any headway in terms of speaking across the aisle and it just seems like we're getting well, more tribal in some ways uh well what, what would jesus well, recommend for all of us we're, we're not we're not going to make any headway we have to defeat the left we have to stand up for truth and you know i'm not going to presume to say jesus would would be a conservative republican i i think he transcends all that but i but i i would say that we our side is fighting for biblical values and I, I think he would encourage us to fight for the truth and what we believe to be right, and, but to do it in a loving way. I do think we, we, ought to know, we ought to recognize, though, as Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians, which we cover in this book, that this is a spiritual war, that spiritual forces are behind these material forces, and they're just as powerful, in fact, more powerful. We're not talking about ghosts and goblins. We're talking about true spirits that are working behind the scenes, and you can say I'm kooky all you want, but if you say that, then you're saying that Paul's uh, writings are not the, the Word of God, and I'm not, this is not some bizarre thing. You, I think people instinctively know that what is going on today, uh, glorification of evil, the killing of babies, and, and, and saying that's wonderful, that right is wrong, good is bad, they have to know that there's some evil forces behind it, because logical human forces, human logic tells you it's insane, and yet you can't persuade them otherwise. So to me, they're blinded, they're spiritually blind, and uh, we just have a duty to try to, I, I think, evangelize, but then have a duty to win, to win politically in the right way, in the fair way, because we need to preserve this nation, because it's the, still the potential beacon to the world, and because our kids deserve what we had uh, to live in this kind of liberty and security that that previous uh, generations uh, fought for and that other nations never were able to enjoy, but are able to enjoy because of our influence. That's today's broadcast. Thanks very much to Zach and Greg Evan for putting the show together and all of you who checked out mysonhunter.com, breitbart.com, etc., etc. You guys know how to help us out. Five-star reviews, sharing, 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 all that. You're doing a great job, and I can't thank you enough. Talk to you next time. And I-